welcome to the Less Doing Podcast. Less Doing, more living, more living, more living, more living. Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Mizell, and this is episode 196, and today I interviewed Blake Eastman of the nonverbal group. Uh, now, Blake is a friend of mine. He's a fascinating individual and has done some of the largest studies, if not the largest studies, on human expression and, and facial expression uh, ever. And just it was such a cool conversation. And also, a big shout out to Blake. This week on Thursday and Friday, we certified our newest group of less doing certified coaches. And Blake was kind enough to come in to do a mock coaching session uh, where they got to all put him on the hot seat. And it was really interesting. I chose Blake on purpose because Blake can read your face. So it's pretty funny to work with him from a coaching standpoint. And uh, it was it was just a really cool experience for everybody. So uh, you're going to love this interview. But in the meantime, got some really interesting links to share with you this week. So uh, first of all, let me just point out, if you're out and about somewhere and you can't get to a computer, just text the word do less to 33733 and you'll get added to the less doing newsletter. And the first email you're going to get is going to have an infographic on how to get to inbox zero. But we do one email a week, pretty much. That's it. And uh, it's, it's very, very informative and just tell you what we're working on and what's new, any highlights from the podcast. And I'd love for you guys to sign up for it. So you just text the word do less to 33733. Uh, okay. So the first one I want to tell you about is called Get Capitan. And it is, uh, it's an app that this is, I feel like somebody was eavesdropping on my, my conversations with my wife and then they created this app. They say, never forget anything at the store. So basically it's a smart shopping list, uh, and it uses artificial intelligence, which is always a nice buzzword, but my wife and I have a pretty big problem, honestly, with efficiency in groceries. We have three kids and two dogs and the two of us, and we just go through food so quickly. And inevitably, one of us is taking two or three kids to the, the grocery store and we forget something or we get something we don't need or whatever it is. So this is a shopping list and you make your shopping list, but you share it with people in your family and a, a few things happen. First of all, you can add things to each other's shopping list. Second of all, it learns the things that you buy and how often you buy them. So it can actually make suggestions of things that you might need. It also will group items together based on where they are in the store that you are going to, which is really cool. So it'll it'll put all the vegetables together for you, for example, and all the produce. And it's it's specific to the store you're going to. And this one I absolutely love. My wife is pregnant right now, and often she thinks of things after the fact. So what this does is when you get to a specific store, it will notify your the members of your family that are on the list and say that so-and-so is at the store if you need any last-minute items, and they can add them to your list. This is so awesome. <laughs> I can't wait to start trying this out with my wife. My wife is so anti-app and anti-technology. I think this one will actually get her to come over to the dark side. So there's uh, an article in the New York Times called, well, not called, it says, Cutting Sugar Improves Children's Health in Just 10 Days. So you can go ahead and read the article for yourself and look at the study. And uh, the, the point of this is that a lot of people, when you have uh, bad habits, Part of the problem with breaking a bad habit is that a lot of people think that there's no point because 
uh, it's it's basically they're too far gone, for example. And not that that should be the case with children, of course, but even if children are having a lot of sugar in your opinion or you feel like uh, it, you're worried that that, that uh, there's there's too much processed food, for example, in their diet, realize that they're, that making a change makes a very big change metabolically uh, fairly quickly, actually. So uh, the best time, the second best time to do it is now, I guess you would say. So uh, the next one is called Get Solid. And... This is supposed to make meetings more efficient. So it's productive in actual meetings every time. Now, meetings in general, in my opinion, are not very efficient. And I'm always, when I'm working with, with organizations and companies, I'm always trying to uh, eliminate meetings, actually, as much as you can, but definitely make them shorter, make them more actionable. So what this does, actually, is it's an app for everybody. You get the meeting agenda, all the tasks, and the decisions in your mailbox, basically. So it, it's almost like an infographic about the meeting. And I have to say, I actually kind of like this. So it forces you into a pattern where you really have to focus on an agenda, and then you get actual minutes right after. So if, for example, you needed to do feedback on something, you can do it right there in the app. I actually think it's pretty well designed. So if you do run a lot of meetings, you might want to check it out. So there was a study published over at PubMed called Metabolic and Hormonal Effects of Catch-Up Sleep in Men with Chronic Repetitive Lifestyle-Driven Sleep Restriction. So th there's been lots of back and forth on this, even since I was a kid, about the ability or even the, the realistic aspects of doing catch-up sleep. And when I was in high school and I had my uh, various ventures, I remember very clearly I was sleeping like three to three and a half hours a night during the week. And then on the weekends, I would crash for like 12 to 14 hours. And it seemed to work. Um, so what this study is showing is that basically they took 19 men, which is not a large study by any means. And they had six months, at least six months of lifestyle-driven restricted sleep during the work week. And then they were getting catch-up sleep on the weekends. Uh, so basically three weekend nights of 10 hours and six hours or 10 hours time in bed. So uh, it was catch-up sleep. And they showed that it actually did have a, a positive effect on their metabolism and their metabolic uh, markers. So... I'm not suggesting that you get a lot of less sleep, but know that if you can catch up on that sleep, it will have an effect and it will be good for you. Uh, there's an article over at Dr. Mercola's site about foods that fight the common cold. And we are in cold season right now, obviously. And he's got a list that I really like. And I just wanted to share those really quickly. He's got zinc, curcumin, uh, olive, oil, olive leaf extract, propolis, oregano, oregano oil, uh, medicinal mushrooms, echinacea elderberry and elderflower extract now you can go and look at the specific benefits of all of those but i have to say personally i think that uh medicinal mushrooms specifically chaga mushrooms is the most effective thing i've ever seen for fighting cold and flu and i've had several experiences with my kids where there was colds going around their school and i felt like i, I woke up with like a sore throat did the did one packet of Chaga mushroom from Four Sigma Foods and felt better the next day, literally. And uh, first of all, you're supposed to mix it into water, hot water or cold water, and then drink it. It doesn't taste particularly good, but I just like to mainline it. So I took the packet, I take the packet and I put it right in my mouth and I let my mucous membrane soak up all that goodness. And it's an awful experience for a few minutes, but it does seem to work. Now, if you're interested in getting some yourself, you can go to lessdoing.com slash shrooms and you can get some of the chaga mushroom powder that I use from Four Sigma Foods. Now, one of the things that I'm always trying to do with less doing with processing information, at least, is some, not, not specifically summarizing, but condensing information. So I think that's better than saying um, summarizing. I really want to be able to get it, the most condensed version of the information I get because there is so much of it. 
So there's a, a new website called ResumUp, and you can turn your resume into an infographic. And at first I saw this, I was like, that's really cheesy and lazy in some way. But at this, uh, then I looked at it again. It's actually very, very cool. I mean, you can show a timeline of where you worked and when you were at school and stuff. You can also show uh, percentage, like skills and how that breaks down, how many uh, certifications you have, that kind of stuff, languages and your proficiency in them. It's it's actually very, very well done. And I have to say that it will, it will definitely stand out as a different kind of resume, and it gives you a very, very quick overview of a candidate. Because the truth is, a lot of people don't end up reading entire documents. It's just like in business plans. Some people will read up just the executive summary, or they just look at the financials. So this gives you that sort of quick view into it. Um, so now there's a, there's a website called StaffJoy that I found, which is automated workforce scheduling. And I was looking at this for the Let's Do is Virtual Assistant service, which was, uh, it, it was really fascinating. You basically automatically schedule your workforce with this. So people say when they're available, uh, and you tell the app when you need people. And essentially, it will it will move the shifts around and it will optimize. And they say that they test millions of possibilities to make the schedule that meets the rules of your business and minimizes labor costs. So that's pretty cool, uh, I have to say, if you can optimize the a work schedule with a large staff. And that's staff joy. Now, I want to take a break for a second here and just let you know that the Less Doing Wadcast is still in full force. People are loving it. They're working out to it in eight minutes a day or less, sometimes much less, actually. And it's really hard, I have to say. I, 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 do, I don't do it every day, but I do do it uh, more days than I don't. And I really, really enjoy it. The randomness of it actually works quite well. And... Uh, it's it's almost like a general protocol that I recommend. So if you're interested in a quick workout that you can get with a podcast download, you don't even have to download an app, just go to lessdoingwodcast.com. And speaking of working out, there's an article over at Barking Up the Wrong Tree talking about the number one ritual that you need to do every day. And that ritual is, drumroll, have more rituals. Yeah, so basically what they found is that the, the more rituals you have for, throughout your day, the better, the happier, the more effective you're going to be. Um, so for example, if you, if, this is, they've actually done this with research. When you toast somebody before a drink, you know, you do cheers or salute or salacha, uh, it makes the, day, the drink taste better. When you take joy in the ritual of preparing your morning coffee, the coffee tastes better. Now, I personally do a cold brew method for the first time ever yesterday. I used a Chemex pour over that I got from a friend and I have to say it was absolutely delicious. And so basically putting some sort of, uh, you can call it a routine if you want, but it's more than that. At least with the, uh, with they call it savoring in this case. So it's where you're like, it's really, if it goes back to mindfulness in a lot of ways, so you're just being aware of what you're doing and putting more into it. And this also speaks to the Ikea effect, which I've mentioned before, which basically tells us that if you are involved in building something or making something, you tend to assign more value to it. So essentially you want to have more rituals in your life. It's, it's, it's really that simple. Um, and they even talk about one that with, uh, overcoming grief. So what they say is what we found is that when people experience a loss that is important to them, if they engage in a ritual, they feel less grief and less sadness towards the loss that they experienced in this domain. Rituals bring back a sense of control and reduce the level of anger or sadness that people experience. So that's pretty interesting, I have to say. Um, so if you can basically implement more rituals into your life, you are going to, maybe you could say that you're going to be happier, but the truth is, and this is something I talk about all the time, what I deal with so often with 
clients is that there's a lack of control, right? And that's what we're trying to get in this overwhelmed world is we want control and rituals help us get that control. So it's a really wonderful thing. Um, so we've had some uh, updates, by the way, in the Less Doing Bootcamp. Uh, and if you are interested in our group coaching program, you should definitely book a free 30-minute productivity maximizer call with one of my Less Doing coaches over at lessdoingcall.com. And in the bootcamp now, we have three live calls per week. I'm doing one. Uh, one of my coaches, Kayvon, is doing one on accountability and uh, goal setting. And then on Mondays, my partner in the Less Doist, Nick, is running outsourcing webinars. So all he does is get on there and talk about ways that you can outsource things and talks through people's technical issues with being able to outsource stuff. So we're just bringing a ton, a ton of value. And in addition to that, I'm actually recording a new video every week for the bootcamp, uh, which was inspired by a session that I had with a client. So yeah, uh, check out the less doing bootcamp and it will change your life. Uh, now this was cool. There's an article in nature and it was, uh, about, so, so this this researcher at Oxford took eight hundred and fifty thousand diaries, and they did a and basically analyzed them to figure out essentially how people are actually spending their time. And they were trying to find out why modern life seems so hectic. And this is again, this is what I talk about all the time. It's the whole point of less doing is that people feel this overwhelm, and a lot of times they just don't know where it comes from. So they they basically looked at all these the all this research. And they found – there's a lot of detail. It's a little bit difficult actually to go into it all for you. But they, they, they journal how people spend every part of their day and like how much time they're spending on email, how much time they're spending on being with their kids, like all that kind of stuff. And it, it's really interesting. I mean it's not, it's not that shocking per se, but it is nice to see this, this uh, level of detail put to it. So uh, there's like seven infographics in this article, and you really would have to go check it out. Yeah, it, you can tell a lot from journaling and really identifying how you do. And actually, there was somebody in our boot camp who hired somebody to shadow them all day long and basically note down everything that they do all day, which is great, basically. So there you go. That's all we've got for this week. Uh, thank you for listening in. And uh, if you're if you are of the Jewish faith, happy Hanukkah to all of you. I, when this comes out, it will be the fourth night of Hanukkah. And I hope that you're all out there enjoying yourselves and having a very, very productive week. The Less Doing Podcast pulls together the top experts in the industry to help you optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life so you can start doing the things you really want to do again. What would you do if you could only work an hour a day? Would you crumble or would you thrive? When I was sick with Crohn's disease, I was faced with that reality because there were days when I literally couldn't eke out more than an hour of work a day. And I had to figure out ways to not only get everything done, but get more done than I was doing before. And that is how Less Doing was born. Less Doing is about you. It's the easiest way to learn and implement a huge amount of productivity tips into your life in a short amount of time. Whether you're a crazy busy business owner, a tired executive in a large company, or a stressed out soccer mom, we've brought it all together for you to help you overcome the overwhelm in your life. For the latest how-tos and actual tips on becoming more productive, sign up for my newsletter over at lessdoing.com. But I want to offer you all something more. As listeners of this podcast, I want to give you the opportunity to get on the phone with one of my Less Doing certified coaches. I've trained each one of them myself, and they really know what they're doing. The first call is completely free, 
and you will get some real advice and tips on how you can be more productive in your life and get back to making things easier again. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the interview. So now I'm speaking with Blake Eastman, who is the founder of the Nonverbal Group and a whole bunch of other things that I want to get into. Uh, so Blake, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. No problem, man. So uh, first of all, let's start with the Nonverbal Group. Like, what, you know, I, What's your background? I know your background is psychology, but share with that with us and then how the Nonverbal Group got started. Um, I think uh, really it got started for several reasons. First, I'm like a, a creepy person and I'm always interested in you know, recording people and breaking down what they do, but also my frustration out of what academic research looked like. So when I was in grad school, like I saw like how long it actually took to get something up and, and the grants and approval process and IRBs and all this stuff. And I was just like, why can't I just do things on my own? And that's kind of what started the nonverbal group. Um, was that dynamic essentially. And then, uh, and then it kind of grew almost like, I guess like almost like lean startup method. Like I started seeing what people wanted and what people needed to improve on and started getting better and better and better and just created a bunch of different studies and a, a bunch of different things to impact people's communication and make people more effective. Well, so let's back up to the recording stuff. Like what, what, what were you doing when you were recording people? What were you starting to identify from that? So like our first, our first studies was in 2008 where we set up a bunch of blind dates and recorded people from multiple angles and tried to break down the elements of, you know, what makes a good conversation, what are nonverbal indications of engagement, what are the specific variables that basically show you uh, people are engaged to one another. And then we moved out to a bunch of different things. We did a lot of stuff on presentations. We would host events called like the creepy cocktail party where we'd invite like 70 to 80 people to come into the office and there'd be basically cameras recording everything that went down, went on. And then we would uh, speak to people on an individual basis and talk about the interactions. Like, how did you feel when this person was walking up to you? So that we can have like a reliable database of validated behavior. And that's really what it's about. Like our goal is to create the largest database of human behavior. So I can show you like what it looks like to talk to, I don't know, somebody who has a low level of facial expressions that is really interested, but they're not displaying like they're interested. Like, and the more and more we have in our database, the better we can help teach people how to read the world around them. Well, so the, you know, the interesting thing to me, particularly about body language, is that it's it's so subconscious on both sides, right? Like, we subconsciously do certain things, and we also subconsciously read certain things in people. But if you were to ask somebody, like, you know, was that guy interested or not, and why, you 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 probably couldn't really give an answer, right? Right. And the, I use the analogy of like medicine. So like if you go to a doctor's office and you're like, you know, my throat's really killing me. It really hurts. Your doctor has a set of diagnostic criteria, which they go through to determine what's wrong with you. Right. Like they, they feel your glands. They maybe give you a strep test. They do all these things. But with social interactions, we don't really have systems or frameworks for approaching. We just kind of like watch people and kind of, all right, like what's going on here? And we design systems and frameworks for thinking about social interactions. And basically, it gives people a level of empowerment because now they know what's going on. They're not just, you know, I think they like me. I think they don't like me. I think they're engaged. I think they're listening. They're not, so on and so forth. So that's really where the empowerment comes from. And then the second thing is people just really don't know what they look like. Like, I mean, the average person has truly no concept of how they look in a given social situation. And that's where video kind of really shines a really bright light on that is after seeing themselves, they can't dispute the fact that they, you know, maybe don't have a lot of facial animation or that they're coming across as cold. 
I mean, I've dealt with people that think they're, they consider themselves to be very, really warm and open people. And the feedback from everyone else is the exact opposite. And they only get this true realization when I show them on video, like talking to people and I'm like, you don't look warm. And they're like, oh my God, you're so right. I don't like, I look kind of like, I don't care. I'm like, exactly. That's, that's the inconsistency or the, the, um, the incongruence in their behavior. Well, and, and why why would there be that incongruency, though? Is it be, I mean, what, like, shouldn't we be sort of like purely acting out what our subconscious is thinking in some ways, or is like people? No, yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is this: is that when you like the whole term, like when you're watching someone in any given interaction, you're very rarely watching like the purest, open form of their behavior. Like you're watching also what I call regulation. So a lot of people are regulating their behavior in social interactions. So they're doing something in order to reduce or increase the amount of behavior. So for example, like the kid who maybe goes on a date and is really anxious the first time on a date with this girl tries to become somebody he's not. So he's regulating his behavior to increase the level of energy, which is coming across as weird. So like it's not just this open display. Like I always say that the the best form of communication is usually with somebody that you have like unconditional positive regard for and somebody that basically like no matter what, you know, this person's not judging you. So I always tell people to like videotape what they look like in a social interaction with like their best friend. That usually is a really good indication of their communication style. And like we kind of work from there. So a lot of what we do ironically is I always, I always joke around that we don't really add skill sets. We take away. So we subtract the things that are making people less effective. So, you, I mean, you're trying to make people be more authentic then. Yeah. And, and people say that all the time, right? They're like, oh, you know, be more authentic, be more authentic. That's not an easy thing. I mean, we have like a lot of things going on in our head. We've got a lot of different ways we should, you know, think we should feel or act or behave. And getting people to be the most authentic is kind of the, the first step. It's the hardest step, but it's the first step. And once you're authentic, then you can go on. I, the reality is this, like most people it's difficult to even teach them to read behavior because in reality, all they really care about is themselves. So they have this, they have this self dialogue going on in conversations and because they're, you know, they're talking, Oh, what does this mean? What does that mean for themselves? They're not able to really be present and really read the behaviors of other people. So first step first is trying to really reduce that. So people could dedicate cognitive resources towards understanding the behavior of someone else as opposed to making the whole conversation about them. Right. Sure. Well, and, and so, I mean, that's always the thing, right? Is, is uh, being interesting and being interested, right? Yeah. Like being interesting and be, like, I mean, it's kind of like those core, I mean, all those core concepts like Gail, Dale Carnegie, like 101, like, but we'll look at it in terms of what does it look like behaviorally? So somebody could be like, oh, I'm, you know, have a conversation with you and like, I'm super interested in everything you do. And you're kind of like, you don't look interested. Like you just kind of just were staring at me and they don't realize that they're not giving off the amount of uh, behaviors that would suggest that they're interested in you. So there's this basically breaking communication. It's kind of like walking up to somebody in the street and being like, you know, a friend, you see a friend, you're like, how are you? And they're like, I'm good, man. And you're like, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, I'm fine. Even though they look like depressed and they look like something's wrong. And it would take like a third thing. Like, listen, man, you look absolutely depressed. Like, is everything all right? Well, actually, and then they tell you everything. Like most people don't really have that level of self-disclosure or openness. So you kind of have to go a little bit deeper to get it. Sure. So now let's talk about some of the ways that you've actually parlayed this into other businesses and other things that you do. So do you, you want to talk about the poker stuff? Yeah. So um, last, around three years ago, we, we started the, it's the largest behavioral study ever to my knowledge right now. It's basically, we did it on poker players. So we had, uh, you know, several 
a lot of poker players come in and basically record them from multiple angles. And then we spent over two years breaking down everything that they did. So we counted, you know, over every single time they blinked, we counted it. So it's over 160,000 blinks, essentially. And then we counted every time they moved, every time, every, basically every time they moved at the poker table. And we built a training program called Beyond Tells that teaches poker players how to read other poker players. And that's kind of our model is we do like a large, a large study in the sense of like we get this massive data set of behavior. And then we use something called grounding theory, which is a, it's basically, we don't go into it with any sort of hypothesis. We just kind of tag, we tag and categorize all the data. And then we look for trends and themes. And then we teach people how to navigate that. So we, we did that recently with, tel- with poker. Um, and then going forward in 2016, we're going to start doing a, 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 lot, a lot of large-scale studies, not only in New York, but across the, across the world. So we're going to be doing data studies in Japan, New Zealand, Australia, England, U.S., on uh, East Coast, West Coast. And then we're going to start you know, taking in all this data and starting to teach these training programs so you can teach people to be more effective by reading others. But now, I, I mean, are you, you're manually coding these videos? Like people are watching it and they're saying like, okay, there's a blank, there's a, a smirk, like a wink, whatever. Um, well, so that's kind of one of the breakthroughs that we're working on something. So not everything. Some of this stuff can be automated. So like blink rate, we can automate that with software. Um, but some of it's manual. So we're, we're, we're basically building uh, an internal system in order for everyone, an internal system that is basically crowdsourcing the validity or crowdsourcing this activity of counting blink rates and doing all that stuff. So Technically, our database could have like four or 500 interns working at it at any given time. And what it does is it cross-validates their performance with people that we've already decided to be, you know, a high uh, coding reliability. So we can just scale this thing really quickly. And now, like, as, you know, as the whole uh, you know, technology is definitely increasing in this area, it's not like at an amazing level, but it is at an area where we can, we can do some pretty cool stuff, like, like count it, like I, yeah. In the poker tells, we counted 165,000 blink rates. Like I have a team of people who just count things. All yeah, day. I mean, that's, and that's that's astonishing. And then, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. You know what? I'll be. Uh, you want to hear my secret? Like you don't. Uh, offshore teams have been the best for that because for them, they're like, oh my god, like I'm getting paid seven dollars an hour to sit here and count blink rates. And I'm like, all I have to do is pay these people seven dollars an hour. We've tried it with interns, but they largely get bored. Like they, you see that they, they can't maintain that level of accuracy and our off, our offshore teams have outperformed every single person in the office, including myself. Yeah, that's just <laughs> in terms of the ability just to count. You know what I mean? It was, I found it interesting. People were, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And then they were just, cause as long as that's the whole thing is that like, as long as we operationally define a blink, right? So we show them examples and we give a definition of what a blink is. And then they started coming up with questions and saying like, oh, what's this problem, this problem? After all that was solved, they had no problem doing that. And they would get a project done in like two weeks where it would take us like six or seven weeks. So we kind of have a whole really, it's a pretty complicated system in order to get the, the data to be, you know, sound. There's a lot of different sources. But once it's, once it's fully integrated, it'll be very easy to scale our projects and do things at a much you know, instead of taking two and a half years, it'll take like three months. Yeah, but now, but what do you like look to correlate it to? I mean, because so, so they blink, you know, 160,000 blinks, but like, so what, what does that, what does that mean? So that's, so that's so interesting. So we don't, I want to kind of like redefine what we do is and not call it research. We don't look for 
these like sweeping correlations in human behavior. Like that's what a lot of, that's what like a lot of like these body language books do. Like, oh, if someone crosses their arms, that means they don't like you. It's like, no, it means they're crossing their arms. That's what that means. Like that's, that's all that means. You know what I mean? We can't attach meaning to this stuff. So what we do is everybody that you meet, every person that you're uh, interacting with is like their own puzzle. We teach you highly effective systems for identifying trends in that player. So for example, there's people in the Beyond Tells in our poker sample that every time they bluff, their blink rate drops to like, you know, one to two blinks per minute where their average blink rate was like 20. We have also some people in the, in the, in the same sample that every time they have the best hand, their blink rate uh, drops. And this has to do with like cognitive overload and all the different processes behind why our blink rate decreases. But the point is, is that it's different for each person. But we can teach you a systematic way of figuring out what it is for that person. So that's kind of what we teach. And I, I want to, I've always, I had a difficult, difficult time kind of branding that and showing people because people want that, right? You want that in life. If somebody, if I go, you know, you're on a meeting with someone and I say to you, if this person rubs their eyes, that means you got it. And that's all you're doing is looking for them to rub their eyes because you, you thought it's an indication. But that's not, human behavior is so complex. How can you possibly deduce these like simple things? You know what I mean? So a lot of the studies on perception are pretty cool, like how people, how people perceive someone's behavior, but on actual meaning, like what's the meaning behind when somebody does X, Y, or Z, you need a system of approach. You can't have just a, a, a set of rules. It's just not possible. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, but so, I mean, you obviously have the, you know, the most experience with this, at least in your cohort of people. So like, how does that, how does it in like your daily life, how does that sort of insert itself? Um, I mean, I've always, to be honest with you, I've always been pretty decent, like at figuring, put it this way. It makes me 100%, uh, I tend to be straighter with people, right? So like if somebody comes into my office and like I'm meeting them for the first time and I think they're anxious, I don't like let the anxiety sit in. I'm like, listen, I've been doing this for five years. Nothing you're going to say right now is going to kind of make me weird or uncomfortable. So spit it out. We're going to get to it eventually. What's going on? Like, and I'm just, I find myself way more efficient than the average communicator. Cause I'm not like, I don't hold back. Like, so I'll be, I'll be giving a presentation and like the person in front of me, like is giving off behaviors that don't like me. Like they clearly don't like me. So I'll, I'll say something in the middle of a presentation or a middle of a pitch. Like you, for example, like you don't seem to like me and they'll shake their head. I mean like, and then good. So now we are on the right, we're, at least we're on the same page here. So let's figure out why, what was the mechanisms behind? What did I say? What did I do? Blah, blah. It's just about being straight. Most people just stay in their head and try to, what does that mean? What does this mean? I just kind of go after it. It's just, it's so much easier to live, uh, to live life like that. Like, as opposed to just kind of staying in your head and, you know, hypothesizing all the reasons why someone didn't text you or why someone didn't say something or what that meant. So if somebody says something a little rude to me and I was offended right there, I'll say like, listen, why did you say that? Like, do, were you referring? And 99% of the time, like, no, I didn't mean that at all, Blake. I meant blah, blah. I'm like, oh, okay, good, done. As opposed to this little back and forth stuff that goes on in so many people's relationships. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I see that all the time. Um, okay, also now, with, with the nonverbal group, let's talk about you know the, the kind of trainings that you're doing with people. So we, we do, we've done a ton of stuff. I mean, really, our two like big classes are dynamic presentations and body language dissected. So our presentation course is just teaching people to be more effective uh, presenters and most importantly, to read the room while you're actually speaking. So most presentations are not dynamic in nature, meaning you have a stack, you have a certain set of things that you go over, but you don't switch. You just hope it kind of works, right? 
And in reality, it, it, you can't do that. Like it, it's almost like imagine Ari, imagine me and you were to have a conversation, right? And you were like, all right, Blake, so there's a couple things that I want to go over. And you have a list of like 15 things and you never deviate at all. You just keep, we're not going to have a good conversation. It's the same way in a presentation. Like your audience is actively giving off volumes of data that you can be using to, to really craft something that's like special and memorable. So we teach people to open their eyes to the information that's happening while they're speaking. Which is hard for a lot of people because so many people have such an irrational fear of public speaking that they're just, they're just trying to get it right or trying to do this or trying to do that. I mean, reality is most people have a different frame of what a presentation is. So they, throughout our society, we make presentations different than normal social interactions, right? Like, oh my God, man, you got to prep for your presentation. You're doing your presentation. Like, oh, you got that big presentation coming up. No one ever says you got that big conversation coming up. But like presentations are all they are are conversations with a larger group of people. And if you could kind of frame it that way, you could start to lower the anxiety that's associated with it. And then you could start to really looking at the behaviors that are happening around you. Um, so that's kind of, that's really interesting. And then we also have a, a body language dissected class where we basically have a two day class where we record everyone from multiple angles in the room while they're taking the class. So like, it's cool. It's like, Every once in a while, at the end, I'll talk to everybody and they're like, I really had a hard time with this person. I really had a hard time with that person. And they tell me, and usually it's, just, it's so fascinating is I know who the person is in the first like two minutes. I was like, everyone's going to have problems with this guy because of specific behavioral things, right? Like uh, that give off the fact that they're going to have problems later on in life. It's kind of like, it, this is the same example. Like if you saw me on my computer and you saw me interact for like four minutes You'd be like, boom, 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 Blake, you're doing all these things wrong, right? Like, because you could be saving so much time here. You could be using this for that. You can be like, quick, I could do the same thing. I see somebody in a conversation for five minutes. I could see the potential problems that will happen in terms of communication. And that's what our classes are about. We do mostly corporate stuff now, though. Like, a lot of, a lot of corporations want to work on this skill set. So that's most of our stuff. But we're bringing it on, like, in, in 2000 and, um, 2017, all of this will be online, available in training yeah, programs. Yeah, well, uh, just to that last point there, I think I, you'll find this probably funny, but when I, so when I do presentations, one of the things that always kind of like, it, it doesn't anymore, but used to throw me off was when I'd see somebody like on their phone or, or but, but the truth yeah. is, is that some people might just be taking notes, you know, so. Okay, exactly. <laughs> so that's exactly what we'll teach. Like we'll teach you a system for determining if they're on their phone or the notes. So if I see, most people see someone on their phone and they go to instantly in their head, they start saying like, all right, they don't think I'm useful. They don't think this is valuable. Maybe I should change something. And this self dialogue goes on. When I see someone on their phone, I say they're on their phone. And then I figure out the mechanisms on why they're on their phone. And then I take the steps to make sure that they put their phone away. So I'm, I do this thing called the wizard principle. And it, it's the whole thought that if I got up on stage and I all of a sudden was like, guys, I'm a wizard. And I lifted my hands and everything turned to gold and I started raising people up off the seats and they saw that I actually had the power to be a wizard. And I said, I'm going to teach everybody in the room right now how to be a wizard. What would they look like? You'd put your phone away if you were about to learn how to become a wizard. You'd put your, you, know, you, you wouldn't talk to the person next to you. You'd be fully engaged with what I'm about to say. And that's, how I hold, that's what I hold my standard for public speaking. I want people to look at me like I have the answer to something. And if they're not doing that and they're on their cell phone, I always take the burden that I'm doing something. And sometimes it has nothing to do with you and the person's family member is dying and it's something completely different. You know what I mean? But the important thing is knowing the reason why 
so that you can start to um, take the steps to deal with it. Because if you know that information, it's easy to interact. It's when you don't know that makes it hard. Yeah, well, and, and so that's actually a pretty good. I love. I like that. Well, my my strategy is what I I started doing was putting all the notes of my uh, for my talk like uh, on a special website. So if I see like a ton of people, well, so if I see a ton of people like with their phones, I'll be like, oh, by the way, don't worry about taking notes because I've got this web page for you. And then you know when three quarters of the people put their phones down, then it's like, okay, good. Yeah, no, I I, I also have a, little, a couple little tests. Like one of the things I do is. Like if I recommend a book, I'll say, I'll preface it with like, guys, this is probably the best book on this kind of stuff that I'm talking about. And I'll count how many people write down the book that I said. So like, if I'm really, if I'm really powerful and really engaged, like I'll get 95% of the people to write it down. Or at the end of the thing, I'll say, if you have anything personally, please reach out to me at Blake at nonverbalgroup.com. Let me say that again, Blake at nonverbalgroup.com. And I'll see how many people write my email down. Like these, those are like little behavioral indications of whether or not people are engaged or not. It's just basic information. Yeah, and, and that's great. And that's a great way to sort of take the pulse of your audience too, because that that is a good point, as you said, is you're not only teaching people to be more effective uh, presenters, but also how to read the room, which is really huge. Because if you just talk at the room, you're not going to be a good presenter. No, it's not going to work. And you said something really interesting: the pulse of an audience. So, like, people always ask me, they're like, Blake, how do you judge a presentation? And I said, well, what do you mean? Like, well, how do you look at someone's presentation and see if it's good or not? And that's the thing is I don't really judge presentations. I watch the audience of the person presenting because I like a certain style. There's a certain style of presenter that I like, right? And I'll be like, oh, I love this. But the other people in the room are not presenting this. So whenever I watch a presentation or I have somebody in one of my classes, I create this kind of like persona and I try to make like 10 different styles. Like what would the super conservative say to that statement? What did the super liberal, what would the person that's a vegetarian say to that? What are the, and I try to create these different personas in order to evaluate what are the potential ways this message could be received. And that's really the thing is that like you judge a presentation often by its audience. I mean, if everybody's looking on their cell phones and people are rolling their eyes and leaning, it's, there's something wrong there. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So the, the last question that I always like to ask on these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Okay. Um, oh, that's good. All right. Number one, n no, number one, no one cares about uh -huh. you. That's, that's my gra That's my grounding things in life. We overestimate how much people care. No one really cares about you. So like somebody, the Barry Manilow oh, sorry? shirt, you know, that study, oh, the is oh, okay. no, sorry, I don't. sorry to interrupt you, but so the spot, it's, I think it's called the spotlight effect. And they had these college students, like they were going to go into a room and then one of them, they stopped them and they're like, could you just put on this, this shirt? And they put on a Barry Manilow shirt and all the kids who were wearing the Barry Manilow shirt were self-report. They reported afterwards that they were like so sure that everybody noticed that they were wearing this ridiculous Barry Manilow shirt uh, recognized that they were wearing this shirt. Yeah. No one cares. No, everybody cares about them. So I did studies. I used to worry that when I was teaching psychology at CUNY, I used to wear like the same pants because the same pants that I wore were really comfortable. And I was like, damn, these students, they're probably like this dirtbag keeps wearing the same pants every day to school. So I did a study and I tried to figure out if anybody knew that I was wearing the same pants. One person knew because I was wearing pants that were from J. Crew and he worked there. No one else knew that I was wearing the same pants no. over and over. And it's just this internal dialogue that goes on with yourself is often not going on with the people around you. And it makes us very not effective. I've seen people spend like 30 minutes crafting an email because they want it to be perceived the right way. I mean, it's like, 
yeah, like don't be an asshole on email, but also like, you know, send it out. Like <laughs> that's the most important thing is like getting the message kind of out there. It would definitely be my uh, uh, first one. Well, wait, the question was effective. Well, yeah, but you right? can interpret that however you like, you know, so yes, but how can you be more effective? The second thing is people have to often, you know, get better at practicing saying what's on their mind. I've seen so many corporations and team issues and team dynamics at the highest levels because people don't really express themselves. Like they just stay in their head about how they disagree or how they don't feel this is effective or they don't feel this will work. And then what happens, it creates a reality where that's exactly what happens. Things are not effective because they didn't actually say it. And sometimes people have some really good, powerful advice to contribute, but they don't because they just keep their mouth shut and they don't say anything. So second thing is, uh, is that, and then final thing is probably something that I really have to work on. And I've been working on actively now is like the, the never put stuff down kind of mentality. So like if I open a, so like before this call, before we had this call, I was like, Oh, I'll just set it up five minutes before. So I opened up the email, I read the email, I closed the email, I opened up the email a second time. Instead of just getting it all ready for exact, so that's what I did. I just, I downloaded that app, I entered in the confirmation code, and I just left it on my phone so I'd have to be done with it. So I'm really working on that right now. So like if, like I'll, I'll, I'll try to pay a, I don't know, I'll have to like change my password on a credit card bill or something like that. And if I don't get it right the first time, I'll just say I'll do it yeah. later. Like, and I don't do it later. So like, that's my, been my big thing in my life. And one of the ways to figure this out is I basically took a piece of paper and I put a check mark on how many times I do this. And in one day it was 185 times, even with being self-conscious about the fact that I was doing it. So I was like, wow, this is a really big problem. And it's, it's, and I, I, and once you do it for yourself, you start to see how many people around you do the same exact thing. So like, that's one of my those are, No, those are awesome. Those are really diverse. So, well, Blake, look, we're going to have everything in the show notes, but give people the best URL to find out more about you. Uh, definitely check out uh, uh, beyondtells.com and watch the video to kind of see kind of the stuff we do. And also you can learn more about Nonverbal Group at nonverbalgroup.com as well. Okay, well, awesome. Thanks, Blake. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing Podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.